Greetings, and welcome to Research on Religion, a weekly podcast series devoted to the social scientific study of religion. I'm Anthony Gill, your host, professor of political science at the University of Washington, and distinguished senior fellow at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion, the gracious sponsor of our podcast. We encourage you to visit our website at www.researchonreligion.org to post comments, ask questions, access additional material related to today's program, and to find out what is happening at the Institute. All right, let's begin. Before beginning our podcast today on conflict and sacred spaces, there are a couple housekeeping items that I would like to attend to. First, you can now subscribe to our podcast using popular music players such as iTunes or Zoom. To do this, you simply click on the subscribe to podcast feature on your music player and enter http colon slash slash www.researchonreligion.org slash podcast when prompted. We'll put instructions on the website so you know how to do that. We encourage you to subscribe so you don't miss a single action-packed episode of Research on Religion. Second, we do have a feature on each podcast episode page that allows you to post comments or raise questions about that particular podcast. Alas, no one has made use of this feature yet, so I am issuing a challenge to some courageous soul out there to be the first one to post a substantive comment. In order to cut down on spam, though, I will only keep the comment feature for each episode open for three weeks after it airs. So hurry up and be the first one to join the dialogue. Next week, we will be featuring an episode on the pilgrims just in time for Thanksgiving. This podcast is a great refresher for those of us who like to think we know uh, something about U.S. history, but it is also ideal for high school students approaching this topic for the first time. As such, we encourage you to pass along information about our podcast to any teachers or homeschoolers you might know. This program is free, and we hope that it becomes a valuable resource for educators, as well as a great listen for anybody interested in religion. And finally, if you have any comments or suggestions about this program, please feel free to drop me an email at tgill at uw.edu. That's T-G-I-L-L at uw.edu. I would love to know that there are some people out there listening and would like to know what you think about the program. Feel free to suggest guests and topics, too. All right. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. Today we return to the topic of religious conflict with a particular focus on the role of sacred spaces. History is replete with examples of battles fought over holy shrines, temples, churches, mosques, and sometimes entire cities. For instance, the Crimean War, waged between 1853 and 1856, was triggered in part by the dis disputed possession of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem and the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. Between 1980 and 1984, a radical Sikh cleric and his followers took possession of the Golden Temple in Amritsar, India. A, sub a subsequent raid to dislodge the insurgents led to the near-complete destruction of this holy site and set off a chain reaction of events that led to the assassination of Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. In the year 2000, it was widely reported that peace talks between Israel and the Palestinians broke down over a conflict about who controlled the Temple Mount, as it is known to Jews, or Haram el-Sharif, as it is known to Muslims. And during the most recent Iraq war, Muslim insurgents have holed up in mosques complicating the counterinsurgency strategy and tactics of the U.S. military, who have been hesitant to besiege these places of worship. 
To talk about the issue of sacred space and conflict, I am pleased to have with me Professor Ron Hasner. Ron is an assistant professor of political science at the University of California, Berkeley, and has advanced degrees in political science and religious studies from Stanford University. He also serves as the co-director of the Religion, Politics, and Globalization program at Berkeley, and is author of the recent book, War on Sacred Grounds, published last year by Cornell University Press. We'll put a link on our website so that you can check out that book and hopefully purchase it. Ron, welcome to Research on Religion. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me on your program. Let me start out by asking you what got you interested in the topic of sacred places and conflict. Uh, the issue of conflict is widely studied in political science, but rarely do we ever attach the notion of religious holy places or sacred spaces to that. So what got you interested in this? So, Tony, I don't know if uh, you've been to Jerusalem or how many of your uh, listeners have been to the great holy sites of the uh, United States, uh, Europe. Uh, I'm assuming, Tony, you have not been to Mecca, but I some of not, you... No, and I so, have not been to Jerusalem either. I'd like to get there someday, but have not been there. So if you've been to any of these places, uh, even, uh, even small mission churches uh, in the United States, uh, but certainly the great cathedrals of Europe, mosques, temples, shrines, you will have noticed, I think, that these are just amazing places. Uh, I mean, you walk in and the atmosphere is uh, just undescribable. There's, there's magic in the air. Uh, these places tend to be grand. Uh, they tend to show off architecture and human achievement at their best. Mm -hmm. They're just beautiful. Uh, they're usually uh, filled with, with, with people who are sort of awestruck by the same uh, emotions that you are going under, fascinating rituals, beautiful imagery. Uh, so these these places are are, are really awesome, but, but they're awesome in two ways. Uh, they're awesome both in the sense that they're just really cool places to go to, mm -hmm. but also in the sense that they are awe-inspiring. There is something scary about them. There's something truly intimidating. And people who've studied the sacred have noticed these two tendencies about sacred things, that they are awesome both in the sense uh, that they attract attention, uh, you want to move closer to them, you want to uh, touch and look and participate, but they are also awe-inspiring in the sense that they are scary because they are filled with uh, divine presence, uh, and as I've argued in my research, they are filled with conflict, and it's that tension that fascinates me. Mm -hmm. uh, it's that tension that's captured, uh, and, and most Muslim, Christian, and Jewish readers will know this famous story. It's captured in the scene of, of Moses and the burning bush, right? He's, he's walking through the desert. Right. He sees this amazing, miraculous sight, a bush that burns uh, sort of continuously. And he immediately wants to draw to it. He immediately wants to see what's going on. He can sort of see through the text that he's moving to it. And then the voice from the bush says, stop. There are rules here. First, take off your shoes. Second, don't approach any nearer. This is me, your God, speaking from the bush. In other words, there's a danger right. in sacred space yeah. because of the divine presence there. Uh, so if you go to a place like Jerusalem, and I've tried to describe this in the introduction to my book, which is just a, a description of what it's like walking through Jerusalem and what a bustling, um, amazing, dark, smelly, crowded insane place this is until you step onto the Temple Mount, the mm -hmm. Haram Sharif, uh, which is this fantastic sacred site. And suddenly everything is quiet and there's an atmosphere of reverence in the air. And you can see for miles the hills all around Jerusalem and the beautiful dome of the rock in the middle, which mm -hmm. is a, an image everybody has seen. Right. And you feel uplifted and you feel closer to God. 
And then you look around carefully and you start feeling scared because you see the soldiers and you see the Muslim guards and you see uh, the Palestinians who don't want you there. Mm -hmm. And you see the Jews who want to be there but can't go. And you feel that you're in the middle of a battlefield. Yeah. And the fact that something can be a battlefield and can be sacred at the same time fascinates me. Well, one, of the, one of the things about your work is that you really make a, a case for why sacred places become such intense places of conflict in, in many circumstances. And we want, to, we want to talk about that. But first of all, you, you give a nice definition of what constitutes a sacred space. I mean, for me at home, it's usually, you know, in front of the big screen TV on Sunday afternoon when the NFL is on, but <laughs> that probably wouldn't constitute a sacred space. So when you talk about sacred spaces, what do you mean? So that's, that's a tough question. And as you know, because you've taught many a class on religion, you, you could easily spend the first two months trying to define religion and then spend the next two months trying to define sacred space. Uh -huh. So there are really two sort of basic attitudes that I use. The one, uh, which I draw from a French sociologist, uh, Emile Durkheim, is that sacred spaces are simply the opposite of secular spaces. And wherever you see a clear distinction between the two, uh, you know you're dealing with sacred space. So you can recognize a sacred space by its boundaries. Mm -hmm. And as people cross those boundaries, they will have to change their behavior. Sometimes they'll have to change the way they dress. Sometimes they'll have, uh, there'll be restrictions on who can access mm -hmm. the sacred space. And certainly, um, they, they'll have to change their attitudes. And in that sense, uh, your, your couch in front of the flat screen TV is a sort of sacred space. There, there are certain rules or things that are allowed and prohibited. Well, that's true. Large sandwiches and pizza are, are completely allowed, but no salad whatsoever. That's right. Yes, and these, you're right. And, and whoever transgresses on the rules doesn't get the, oh, that's right, the rules right. in the space. So, so that allows us to bring issues like um, civil religious sacred space into the picture. And if you want to, we, we could talk about this later, sort of monuments and museums mm -hmm. and the sense in which the Lincoln Memorial or the National Archives in Washington, D.C. are also a sacred space, just, right. just of a different kind. And, and we share certain norms that, you know, when you're in the National Archives, you're in hush-hush voice. and That's right. Yeah. That's right. And so even, uh, even people in religious movements that are not big on visual symbols and overt ritual, like certain Protestant groups, who mm -hmm. uh, worship in churches that can very often just be plain rooms or, mm -hmm. or unadorned, um, even there, the rules are very, very clear. You don't walk in barefoot. Yeah. You got to wear a shirt. You don't spit on the ground. You don't cuss. Right. Right. Uh, and those and those rules are. I mean, it's clear that you're in some some different presence. Even if the space stops being sacred, the moment the ceremony is over. So that's one way of doing it. But this this way is sort of vague and, and complicated. So the other way I go about doing this is to look at the functions that the space provides to people. So this is sort of a functionalist approach. So a sacred space is any space in which you have a better chance of accessing the divine. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, there, there's, there's a mystery, there's a paradox regarding all religious movements in their attitude towards sacred space and sacred time. Because the divine is everywhere always. And nonetheless, some times of year and some times of the week are more sacred than others. Right. And some places are more sacred than others. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of a baffling paradox, but there it is. And in those special times and in those special places, you have a better chance of seeing God, uh, having a conversation with God, witnessing a miracle, receiving healing, um, or gaining some insight into the greater meaning of your religious movement. Mm -hmm. Which isn't to say that you couldn't do all these things in the middle of an empty field, but these sacred sites have been recognized for a whole variety of reasons 
as places in which, in which your chance of doing so are are better. And there's you know there's the, the there are many many jokes about the Western Wall in Jerusalem, uh, but one of them has to do with with uh, a rabbi and a pope communicating with God, and the rabbi does so through the pope's special phone in the Vatican, and the pope charges him you know half a million dollars for the phone call. And then when the Pope comes to Jerusalem and communicates to God through the Western Wall, uh, the rabbi doesn't charge him anything and says, look, it's Jerusalem, it's a local call. <laughs> because Jerusalem <laughs> is conceived as being somehow closer to God. Right, uh, right. This is a place in which God's presence is somehow purer, clearer, less cluttered. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to some Jewish beliefs, there are parts of God that are quite physically residing in the Western Wall. You can sort of reach out and touch God right. at these places. And, and that's what makes it, it it's so... You know, meaningful. I mean, th- that something has happened there before. It has mm-hmm. some deep connection. The, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is um, supposedly the place where Jesus was crucified and resurrected. Yep. Um, the Temple Mount and uh, Haram, or Haram al-Sharif, this is a place where Muhammad uh, came on his magical night journey and ascended into heaven for a mm-hmm. while. Is that, so those, those, are, those are big places. Those are important places for a lot of people. That's right. Uh, but of course, the same rules also apply to Anything from your grand mosque, main synagogue slash cathedral, uh-huh. uh, or or large regional temple, whether it's Buddhist or Hindu, mm-hmm. uh, but also apply to your corner church and even to a small roadside chapel, just to different degrees. Mm-hmm. So one way to sort of estimate how important a sacred space is, which I deeply suspect is a pretty good indicator for how much fighting there will be over it, mm, okay. is to ask yourself, how well does it provide those three functions? Uh, the function of communicating better with God, right. receiving divine blessing of some sort, and gaining insight mm-hmm. into faith. Uh, so some of these places are clearly more central than others. If you think of religion as sort of a map, a landscape, uh, for Catholics, Rome and Jerusalem are in the middle of that map. And that has to do with the history of the faith. Um, for Mormons, uh, uh, Utah will be a place of uh, tremendous centrality. Mm-hmm. And Salt Lake City will be a place of even greater centrality. Mm-hmm. And Temple Square will outdo both of those in its centrality. And the temple in the middle of Temple Square. And then we can keep zooming in. The Holy of Holies in that temple, and, and every large Mormon temple has one, uh, will be even more important. Uh, How can you tell? Well, you can go the Durkheim way and point out the fact that as I go from Utah to Salt Lake City to Temple Square to the Temple to the Holy of Holies, there are more and more restrictive rules on behavior and access. In fact, I am not a Mormon, therefore Mm -hmm. I have never been inside the temple, let alone the Holy of Holies. Right. Um, And not all Mormons can even do that. Mm -hmm. They have to pass certain, certain qualifications. Uh, the same is true, and, and the Talmud says this very clearly, of the temple that used to stand on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Uh, and the Talmud says that Israel is the middle of the world, and Jerusalem is the middle of Israel. It's really sort of imagining the map of the world as built of these concentric circles, and in the middle of Jerusalem is the Temple Mount, and in the middle of the Temple Mount is the temple, and in the middle of the temple is the Holy of Holies, and into that only one person could enter once a year, that was the high priest mm-hmm. who entered on Yom Kippur. Uh, so, uh, as you think about the Temple Mount, uh, actually most anybody could access it when the temple still stood 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you didn't have to be Jewish to get on the Temple Mount, but you had to be Jewish to pass a certain marker that surrounded the temple. At that point, uh, 
there was a distinction between men and women. Men could move even closer to the actual structure. At that point, there was another gate, and now it was only priests and Levites mm -hmm. who could enter the inner court. In that inner court was yet another court into which only the priests could enter, then the structure itself into which only the high priests and their assistants could enter, and then inside the Holy of Holies. Uh, and each of these ranks higher in terms of significance. And mm -hmm. so we can sort of map out sacred sites based on how central they are. I'll add one caveat to that, and that is politics can okay. take a very small and relatively insignificant sacred site and elevate it. Also, give us an example of that. Well, I, we've all been watching the Chilean mine on TV, and I'm right. thinking that that shrine inside the Chilean mine yeah. became a sacred site of tremendous importance to an entire nation, yeah. even though it's not a site of any historical record, no revelation took place there, uh, it's not a place um, in, in which one can gain particular insight. The miners may have felt that, that you know, God's mm -hmm. providence was at their side, and they even said this. But due to political events in Chile, it has ascended in importance. And similarly, sacred places over which there is conflict become symbols of the conflict, and they become symbols to the two sides uh, for point. each side of its stakes in the conflict, which, of course, really complicates my analysis as a political scientist, because oh, yeah, I'm yeah. arguing... The more important the site, the more likely the conflict. Right. But now I've just said, the more likely the conflict, the more important the site. So you get a feedback circle. Yes, yeah, one could think of the World Trade Center as, as one of those That's sites exactly right. as well. And we might come back and, and discuss that because that yep. is becoming a, a, a site for sacred battles right now as we talk here in 2010. Yep. Um, you mentioned the, the Chilean miners issue. And we are recording this at uh, October 15th here. So the miners were just pulled up out of the ground a couple of days ago. What, what's absolutely fascinating is that, you know, for those 33 guys down there, that the shrine or the little uh, um, shrine that they built uh, while they were down there, uh, it was probably really important for them. But as you mentioned, as as this becomes a national and even global phenomena, that takes on importance for everybody else as well. It's not just those 33 guys. So the, as, as you mentioned, political uh, attention to it or media attention to this can really expand the scope of the sacredness of the place. That's right. And so one way to tell that a sacred place is important, even though it's not necessarily a formal site of religious practice, um, is to see how far people are willing to come to visit it, so to measure pilgrimages. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking, for example, about various Marian shrines scattered throughout the world, places where right. people have claimed to witness the Virgin Mary, uh, Medjugorje in Poland, um, Guadalupe in Mexico. Mm -hmm. These are all places, uh, th some of them are very new, some of them are less mm -hmm. than a century old as shrines, some of them are not places in which a traditional historical event has taken place, like the Via Dolorosa in mm -hmm. Jerusalem, where you say, you know, we worship here because 2,000 years ago, the founder of our religion walked here, mm -hmm. or Mount Sinai, where you say, well, you know, four or 5,000 years ago, the founder of our religion received the Ten Commandments here. Mm -hmm. No, this is a place that was of absolutely no significance 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago until three or four kids claimed to have seen the Virgin Mary here. Right. But people believe that by going there, um, they will have their wishes fulfilled, they will have some sort of divine revelation, they can reach out and touch the gods somehow, mm -hmm. um, and that place then becomes extremely central. 
One of the characteristics that you talk about in your work about sacred spaces is something that you call indivisibility. And this really becomes a core feature when we talk about conflict over uh, sacred spaces. So what, what do you mean by the feature of indivisibility for a sacred space? So indivisibility is a cool concept. It's not my own. It comes from economics, and some political scientists use it, although most people who use the concept in economics and political science immediately follow up by saying, we can't really think of a single example of indivisibility. So indivisibility means just what it means. It means something cannot be divided up. Or to be more precise, you could divide it up, but the moment you divided it up, it would lose all value. Mm -hmm. So the metaphor that I go back to time and time again in my work is... Solomon's judgment. Right. So here you have Solomon and you have a baby and you have two moms each claiming the baby is their own. Uh, as an aside note, this is not a paternity suit. That is, they, they, they're not asking for Solomon to decide who gets to raise the baby or who gets to spend time with the baby. Mm -hmm. Time with the baby is divisible. You could say, well, you get three days a week and you get four days a week. Right, it's time, parent sharing. That's whatever. not what they're fighting over. They're fighting over the body of the baby because one of them has a living baby, the other has a dead baby, and they want to possess the body of that baby. Mm -hmm. And Solomon, by threatening to divide the baby, makes it very, very clear um, that babies are indivisible, which doesn't mean you can't divide them. You can divide them very easily. All you need is a really sharp knife. And that's what he did in the story. He pulls out a sword and says, okay, right. let's divide it. And yeah, so babies are divisible in that sense. Mm -hmm. But, of course, to a real mother, that's a horrifying thought. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly how the story ends. Right, just to find out who the, the real mother was when you're at the point of dividing the child. Um, one of the mothers screams in horror, says, no, you can't do that. And the other one who was not the mother of the child said, well, okay. So anybody who thinks, like that second mother, that a baby is divisible mm -hmm. is clearly not a mother. Right. Or is a mother who's mentally insane somehow. Yeah. Part of what it means. Not sacred, right? That's right. Part of what it means for a, a person to be a mother is, in part, they think their babies are indivisible. Mm -hmm. Here's exactly what that means. Um, you can't have any part of my son, Mikey. Mm-hmm. And if you offered me a million dollars, I'd still say no. And if you offered me $10 million, I'd say no. And I think after you offered me $100 million and I said no, you'd stop. Mm -hmm. Then you'd maybe change strategy and you'd say, hey, Ron, how about just a finger? Yeah, and yeah. I'd say no. Yeah. How about just one part of a finger? And I'd still say no. How about just one part of a finger for $100 million? No. Nothing. Not an inch. Mm -hmm. So when I say indivisible, I mean not the smallest concession is possible. Now, this is a strange thing to say about space mm -hmm. because as any real estate agent knows or any farmer right. or any cartographer, space is very easy to divide. Right. In fact, there are infinite ways that you can divide any space. Um, you can, all you need is a ruler and a pencil and you can cut it this way and that way and lob up this little bit and diagonally and straight across. My argument is that sacred space is indivisible because as soon as you lob off even the smallest part it loses all value to believers. And th this is the really brilliant insight that I, I pull from your work because, as you mentioned, a number of political scientists who study conflict, uh, specifically territorial conflict, but also could be conflict on, on various issue areas such as health care or you know, welfare reform, etc., um, tend to see these issues or these spaces as divisible. 
that we can negotiate over some territory of, of land. Uh, you can have this part of Alsace-Lorraine and we'll take this other part or the Sudetenland or, or such. So you can divide up land that way or in terms of issues, you can think about dividing these issues in terms of other issues and compromising it. So, okay, well, you don't, you don't get everything that you want for healthcare, but you can have insurance reform to some respect. And so, as you just noted a little bit earlier, most political scientists cannot imagine an indivisible good. But you put your finger right here on, on one of them, which it tells you why these conflicts become so intense. So what, what's the relationship here between the indivisibility of a sacred space and the intensity of the conflict? So indivisibility means, among other things, that there is no, here I'm, I'm using economy talk here, there's no bargaining range. There is no way for us to compromise over this issue. Mm -hmm. um, it becomes an all or nothing issue. In addition, I'm unwilling to accept side payments. I'm unwilling to accept any money for this. So there's nothing left for us to do except for one of us to just give up and go home, which ain't going to happen. Right, especially because if it's very sacred. Because right? it's sacred, right? right? This is a unique place. There's nothing like it on the planet. There's only one Via Dolorosa in the world. Yeah. There's only one Church of the Holy Sepulchre in the world. There's only one place on the planet where Jesus rose from the dead. Mm -hmm. It's pretty important. It's smaller. It's about half the size of the table we're sitting at. But it's really, really significant. Mm -hmm. So I care about this tremendously. Again, the metaphor of my kids comes to mind. Right. I am unwilling to accept any compromise. I'm unwilling to share. That leaves us with one option, and that is fight. Duke it out. Yeah. Now, many political leaders and many political scientists um, think that this is strange. Uh, there ought to be some way around this. Mm -hmm. So here, here are the usual ways in which we get around unwillingness to share territory. Uh, one thing we, we might do is we could introduce some ambiguity into the territory that we're fighting over. So Germany and France are fighting over Alsace-Lorraine. It's a very good example you brought up. Well, we could say, you know, Alsace-Lorraine has meant different things for different people over time. How about we call this part over here French Alsace-Lorraine, mm -hmm. and the French can have all of it, and we call this other part here German Alsace-Lorraine, the Germans can have all of it, and that way you guys don't need to fight. Yeah. And even if there's a little bit of overlap between these two, well, they're going to fight over the overlap, but still I've reduced most of the conflict mm -hmm. to just that little overlapping bit. Well, you can't do that because, as we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, Durkheim tells us the boundaries of these sacred places have to be very clearly defined. Right. Because as you enter them, you have to change your behavior. You have to change the way you dress. Uh, you have to put on a hat. Uh, if, you're, if you're going into a synagogue, you have to take off a hat. If you're going into a church, you have to take off your shoes. If you're going into a mosque, you have to wash. If you're going into a Shinto shrine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, so we know exactly, exactly to the inch where the sacred space starts and ends. Uh, we also need these very clear borders because we want to make sure that the right people come in or not. If you're not Muslim, you're not coming within 30 miles of Mecca. Mm -hmm. And if you try, you will be punished severely. Right. If you are a woman, you will not enter into many Greek Orthodox monasteries around the world into which women are simply not allowed. We need to know exactly where that monastery starts and ends mm -hmm. so that we make sure that no woman sets foot in the wrong place. Right. So that strategy of ambiguity you have your church of the Holy Sepulchre and I have mine, doesn't work. Yeah. So that's one issue. The other option for resolving these disputes um, is, to, is to offer some sort of substitute. 
I'll give you a million dollars, or you can have this other sacred site. Mm -hmm. That's not going to work again because these places are irreplaceable. Right. And the final option, which is to somehow take the thing apart, you get to have the left corner and I get to have the right corner, doesn't work because the, the structure and design of sacred places is such that even if they're very, very big, each part complements the other. Mm -hmm. So think of the design of a church. Um, let's assume you and I are fighting over this church, and I could say, um, you know what, you have the altar and I'll have uh, the aisle. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, the, the altar is useless without the aisle. The aisle is useless without the altar, right? The apse, the transept, these are all parts of the structure. They all function together. Many of the ceremonies that we will conduct in a sacred space will involve us using all these parts. Right. If you think about it, a lot of ceremonies at sacred sites involve walking around the sacred space, mm -hmm. which is like wrapping it into a package, right? This is all one thing. That's how you consecrate a church. You walk around it a given number of times. Mm -hmm. When Muslims arrive in Mecca, they circumambulate the Kaaba, which is the, the, the structure in the middle of the mm -hmm. Grand Mosque. So um, these parts hang together, and they do that symbolically too. There's a reason why a church is shaped like a cross. Mm -hmm. uh, the church is the body of Christ. So suggesting that, that you take the altar and I take the aisle is like saying you're going to take the heart and mind of Christ and, 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 and I get everything below the neck. Right, right. It, it's, it, it's aesthetically um, impossible. Mm -hmm. So there's no ambiguity. It's very clear where those sacred sites start and end. There is no side payment possibility. I'm not going to accept any uh, substitutes. I'm not going to accept any compromise. And we can't split the thing up. So what are we left with? One option, fight. Yeah. And you, you talk about this in, in, in you know, very um, stark political terms uh, by detailing the breakdown of the Camp David talks in uh, the late 1990s, the year 2000. Um, there's a lot of compromise over territory. Where can Jews build their settlements here? Can they not build them here? And uh, territorial issues like that. But in 2000, it was widely reported that um, negotiations broke down about the status of the Temple Mount or uh, Haram al-Sharif. So uh, tell, give us an example, give us that as an example of what you're talking about here. So, you know, it, it's sort of hard to get exact reports of what happened in Camp David mm -hmm. and opinions differ and there's been a lot of spin on it. Uh, my personal impression from reading much of what's been written about this uh, and much of that comes from participants was that on the big issues, should there be a Palestinian state? Mm -hmm. What exactly are its borders? What form should the Palestinian police or military take? What do we do with Palestinian refugees? Water, all these thorny issues. Of course they were resolved because they're resolvable, they're divisible. You give here and I'll give there, or I'll offer you money, or Uncle Sam will offer both of us money to reach this agreement. If we can't agree on the border, how about I give a few, I'll give you a few square miles here, you give me a few square miles there. Those issues are all manageable because those three options I keep talking about, ambiguity, splitting something through the middle, mm -hmm. or offering money on the side, are always possible. Not when it came to the Temple Mount, which is this sacred site in the middle of Jerusalem, where according to Jewish belief, the Jewish temple stood, mm -hmm. and the ruins of that Jewish temple are still there. And on top of that, not coincidentally, are Muslim shrines of great importance. Mm -hmm. This is arguably the third most important place on earth for Muslims. Right. The first two being Mecca and Medina in Saudi right. Arabia. Um, part of the problem was this issue of indivisibility. Uh, and, and I stand behind my claim that this Jerusalem problem cannot be resolved. Yeah. Period. Uh, that's a very, very pessimistic claim. There is no way to divide the Temple Mount. 
I'll make a caveat at, at, at the very end, if you like, we can talk about this, mm-hmm. the role that religious leaders can play in changing the way people think about sacred space. But that would involve bringing them into the conversation. Well, that, that, let me stop you there, because this is a, another interesting aspect of the negotiations at Camp David. And there's been attempts at bringing peace to the Middle East for, for decades and decades and decades, um, oftentimes to no avail. looks like you're getting very close on a lot of the territorial issues, things which you would call divisible. But it always tends to break down somewhere. And what, what is interesting, and you were just talking about consulting religious leaders, you noted during the late 1990s and into 2000, the, the talks um, between the Israelis and the Palestinians, a number of people were consulted, political scientists, economists, um, geographers or cartographers talking about how different space is going to be cut up. But the one thing that in many ways caught people by surprise was that um, this whole Temple Mount, Haram, El Sharif problem was there. Nobody consulted um, religious leaders. Yes, because they thought it would complicate things too much. Yeah. And and Israel's uh, uh, prime negotiator on Jerusalem later said, um, in part, he, he didn't understand what the problem was with Jerusalem. It's just a real estate problem, and he didn't see why people were getting all excited about it and bothered about it. He simply didn't get it. Yeah. He just didn't understand that this was not a re- this is not real estate. Real estate is divisible. This is sacred space. Right. It's divine real estate. Yeah. Um, now, not including religious leaders, which is not unique to Palestinians and Israelis. Yeah. Uh, to this day, the State Department has nobody uh, in official capacity advising on religious matters. Yeah. Um, because again, we are, we are, we're obsessed with this idea of separating church and state. And so we have to be stupid ab- about religious things. Um, well, the, and I, I think in many ways too, it's just how diplomacy throughout history has always, you know, largely been about shifting territorial boundaries. And so we, we tend to think that's yeah. how these things are. But right? we do rely on experts on other things. So Madeline Albright says this in her second, uh, autobiography, mm-hmm. there may be a third. Uh, she says, you know, when I was when I was Secretary of State and I had an economic issue, I turned to my economic experts. Right. And when I had a legal issue, I turned to my legal experts. And when I had a language issue, I turned to my language experts. And when I had a religious issue, I had nobody to talk to. Hmm. There was simply nobody I could ask for basic advice. Yeah. And so these Israelis, Palestinians, and Americans go to Camp David in 2000, having never once talked to a rabbi, an imam, or um, or, or a Christian member of the clergy yeah. to find out what exactly are we negotiating here. Mm-hmm. And the results were twofold. First, they ended up negotiating over the wrong thing. Uh, so the, the Israeli prime minister at the time, Ehud Barak, made at some point in the negotiations the outrageous demand that the Israelis be allowed to build uh, a synagogue on the Temple Mount. Mm-hmm. Now, this not only angered the Muslims a great deal, but is also completely out of line with Jewish requirements to the Temple Mount. Mm-hmm. Jews may not enter the Temple Mount, let alone build a synagogue there. It's just a nutty idea. I don't know where he got that notion from. At the same time, Yasser Arafat, who represented the Palestinians at the time, refused to even recognize the Jewish link to the Temple Mount, even though the Muslim reverence to the Temple Mount is based on that Jewish link. In other right. words, J- Muslims revere Jerusalem because it is the cradle of their religion. Yeah, it follows the Abrahamic faith. It follows the Abrahamic faith. So, so he too was, I mean, these were secular leaders ignorant of the religious foundations of their constituencies, and they misrepresented what those constituencies wanted and often asked for much more mm-hmm. than their own voters would have demanded. So that was one problem. The other problem is you leave these religious 
leaders out of the process, they're not just going to sit there and do nothing. They issued rulings. Christians did, Muslims did, and Jews did. Issues rulings scuttling any agreement before it was even reached. Mm-hmm. So they hampered the process from outside. Had you, do you think that was intentional as a spoiler role? Or they, played a, they played a very, very clear spoiler role, yeah. in part because they were upset that they weren't consulted, yeah. in part because the agreements reached were out of line with their religious criteria. So let me give you one example for this. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill Clinton, smart guy, was there, ran the negotiations, and at some point came up with a brilliant idea, which was not actually his. It, it came from an Israeli geographer, but it was nonetheless a brilliant idea. He said, look, you're, you're fighting over this mount um, because there are these Muslim shrines on top, there's this, there this history underneath, and we're trying to find a way to slice through this cake, but you're telling me that the cake is indivisible, so why don't we slice through it horizontally? Hmm. There's thinking outside the box. Go into three dimensions. Yeah, you just hold the knife on its side and you cut through the layers of the cake instead of cutting through the cake top down the way you usually would. The Muslims, actually nothing has to change. The Muslims own the top, means they can keep going to, and worshiping at the shrines at which they worship. Right. The Jews will, quote-unquote, own the inside of the mount, w- which, again, doesn't change anything because right. there's no way they can access that. They yeah. could keep worshiping from outside. Nothing has to change, but we're going to divide ownership up this way. It's a brilliant solution. It's, it's a fantastic example for thinking outside the box, and it's absolutely wrong from at least a Jewish point of view, perhaps also a Muslim point of view, mm-hmm. because and you need to know a little about sort of Jewish halachic thinking here, that is sort of Jewish legal thinking. In Judaism, holiness is infinitely vertical. Mm. So the sacredness of a site continues endlessly up into space Mm. and down into the ground. So if there is, for example, uh, a sacred site into which women may not enter, they can also not fly over it in an airplane or in a spaceship. Now, if you know this about the Jewish rules pertaining to sacred space, then then you realize you can't cut through that space. What you're doing is you're severing the link between the sacred space and the heavens. Hmm. Um, so what sounds like an excellent political idea, excellent political, excellent psychological, geez, it's even excellent from a, from a geometric point of view, yeah, yeah. is an awful idea from a religious point of view. Yeah. But to know that, you need to talk to a religious expert at the very least. At the very least, they should have talked to somebody like you or me. Right. Because we know some stuff about religion. Well, I just learned this about the, the verticalness. I, I would have made the same mistake that Clinton did. I well, so, 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 but, but, but probably not if the, if, the, if the cited dispute had been closer to within your, your yeah. a, area of expertise. Yeah. But they didn't talk to even academics who are experts in religion, mm-hmm. let alone religious leaders who could have been brought on board. Now, bringing religious leaders on board is not always easy. Uh, some religious leaders are very hard-headed. Some of them are extreme. So you need to pick the right religious leader. Yeah. Uh, you need to listen to them, I think, with respect. You can then disagree. You need to take good notes. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can even co-opt them. Maybe you can even get them to talk to their followers. And I give some examples in War on Sacred Grounds about cases in which religious leaders completely changed how their believers thought about sacred space in a way that can resolve conflict. G- give us an example of that. So Jerusalem is, is, is a really good example for that. Uh, and this takes us back uh, 30, 40 years to the Six-Day War. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you will remember that uh, before the Six-Day War, neither Jews nor Israelis had any access to Jerusalem 
or the Temple Mount, or even the Western Wall. Mm-hmm. It was under Jordanian rule, and despite Jordanian promises, there was no access at all. So in the Six-Day War, as Israel expanded its borders, uh, among other things, it conquered slash occupied, occupied slash liberated, depending on who you ask, mm-hmm. Jerusalem and the Holy Sites, which caused tremendous joy, um, but also created some really big headaches. Because mm-hmm. at the center of all this, was again the Temple Mount, a site from which Jews had been barred for 2,000 years, the most holy site for Jews on earth, which now Muslims were praying at. And it was clear that Jews from all around the world, in their millions, would want to come to this sacred site. They would not want to remove their shoes, as is Muslim custom. They would not necessarily want to revere Muslim practices, and the Muslims certainly weren't going to put on yarmulkes and revere the Jewish practices. So it was obvious that is, for the first time in 2,000 years, millions of Jews stream onto the Temple Mount. There was going to be conflict. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there was conflict everywhere else in various tiny sacred places that the Israeli Defense Forces liberated, the tomb of Rachel in Bethlehem, the tomb of Joseph in Samaria, the tomb of the patriarchs in Hebron. Most of these sites are no bigger than this room. And in all of these Jews were allowed to enter for the first time in 2,000 years, immediate conflict with the Muslims. In mm-hmm. fact, much of this conflict continues to this day. It didn't happen on the Temple Mount. And the reason why it didn't happen on the Temple Mount is sort of fascinating. As this idea of Jewish access to the Temple Mount became possible for the first time in 2,000 years of history, a big consortium of rabbis, in fact, all the leading rabbis in Israel, got together to figure out what this meant. Because accessing the Temple 2,000 years ago implied a very complicated set of rules. And I mentioned some of these rules, right? Non-Jews were allowed to go this far, and then Jews were allowed to go that far, and then the women could only go to this gate, and the men could go to the next gate. There are also purification rituals, now lost, because for 2,000 years they weren't used. Um, And to complicate matters even further, it wasn't clear where on that platform the temple stood. So it wasn't clear where that gate used to be that women could couldn't walk through and men could. Yeah. And so these rabbis made an astounding decision. This was two months after the war. They issued a ruling by consensus that because the site was so sacred and because the rules were ambiguous and because the danger of desecration was so big, no Jews were allowed to enter ever. This was a rab- rabbinical ruling yeah. prohibiting the members of their own religion from accessing their most sacred site. And as a result, no Jews went up the Temple Mount. And most Jews to this day refuse to go up the Temple Mount. Mm -hmm. And as a result, there has been no conflict on the Temple Mount between Jews and Muslims, which is just incredible. I mean, that story blows my mind. It blows my mind even more because of suggestions and implications, and I refer to those in my research, that this ruling was not without political intervention. Mm. So as these rabbis were sitting there deliberating, and in Judaism, you need a big group of rabbis to deliberate because there is no pope. There is no hier- clear right. hierarchy. So the 70-something rabbis, and then later on, another 300 signed on to this. Some rabbis disagreed. And several of these rabbis were prevented from attending the conference. Mm-hmm. And others were censored. And so it may well be the case that the Israeli government intervened and spoke to those rabbis and said, look, guys, we got a real problem here. If you permit Jews to enter the Temple Mount, um, we can't patrol the Temple Mount with soldiers. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. if, if you have Muslims and Jews fighting over sacred space, the last thing you want is armed people right. guarding them. 
We can't prevent the Muslims or the Jews from accessing. That's not going to work either. Yeah. Freedom of religion, Israel is a democracy, and to this day, every person has every right to access every sacred site in Israel. Um, so help us out here. Right, <laughs> See what right. you can do. And the ruling was baffling. I, I know of no other religion in which the clergy has said, your most sacred site is so sacred to you that you're hereby prohibited from going there. Yeah, it's an, it's an absolutely you know, fascinating ruling that mitigates the conflict yet preserves the sacredness. In fact, it might even augment the sacredness. Correct. It's so sacred you can't go there and say, whoa, that must be really, really sacred. That's right. Now, it doesn't solve the dispute. Right. We still want to own this. Yeah. In fact, we want to own this because we also don't want the other guys going there. Right. But we have no control over the other guys, say the rabbis. Yeah. Right? We, all we do is we control our Jewish flock. And we're going to prevent our Jewish, our Jewish followers from going there. And if you visit Jerusalem, which you should, you'll see a sign at the entrance of the Temple Mount that says... Uh, uh, you are not permitted to enter this sacred site because it is sacred. Yeah. Uh, here's what's interesting about this ruling, by the way. Some Jews will ignore the rabbinical ruling and enter nonetheless. These are secular Jews. Most right. Israelis, in fact, are secular right. Jews. Um, and, and for them, it's a tourist spot. For right. them, it's a tourist spot. They're also not the types to get into a fight with Muslims. Yeah. Because they're not there to pray. Right. So what's great about the ruling is it keeps out exactly... The kinds of people yeah. who are going there to cause trouble. Mm -hmm. it, it's really, it's, it's a fascinating exercise in, in crowd control <laughs> in part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's not cynical. I think these rabbis were really worried about the danger of desecration. And when asked about this ruling, several of them made a very interesting argument. They said, not only is there a problem of desecration here, but there's also a problem of preventing bloodshed, which is the prime Jewish directive. Mm -hmm. You can break any rule. Uh, you can eat pork. You can desecrate the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. If in doing so you save a human life. And so they said attending the temple is one of the greatest duties that any Jew can fulfill. But we envision that if we allow Jews to go there, there will be bloodshed. And can and, do that. That's... And we can do that. And therefore, to prevent bloodshed, we are limiting Jewish access to the Temple Mount. Mm -hmm. So now is this politics or religion? doesn't matter. The yeah. distinction is artificial. Right, right. It's a political religious decision. And in fact, this is, if you walk away with any lesson from this, it's this. At sacred space, politics and religion become one thing. Right. You can't separate them out. You can't do what these people did at Camp David and say, we're going to deal with the political problem here. We're going to leave the religious problem to the leaders. Yeah. Sacred space brings the politics and the religion together in one site. Um, because in part, the, the kind of Demands that religious believers have about sacred space are explicitly political demands, right? They want to control the boundaries. They want to control who comes in, Access. and they want to control how you behave. Right. Well, what do we call that? The desire to control the boundaries of something, control who comes in, who comes out, and how you behave inside. We call that That's sovereignty. The yeah. It's the state, right? <laughs> it's exactly the same yeah. rules apply. Yeah. That's, I, in, um, you know, absolutely fascinating, as, as you mentioned earlier, that you know, for us in the United States and probably for many policymakers in the United States who often um, have tend to have more secular backgrounds that, uh, you know, we tend to disassociate. Well, you, you separate out the church and state, and which oftentimes gets to you separate out the political and the religious, which is not necessarily the same thing as church and state. So it becomes a completely foreign and oftentimes forgotten concept for us to deal with in many ways. Let me, let me ask you if, you, if you want to get into this, this, your book was published in 2009, but in the past few months, there's been a controversy that's arisen in New York City 
um, with the desire by some to construct a mosque or a Muslim cultural center just a few blocks uh, from where the World Trade Center stood. So, I mean, I would assume that, you, you know, what you're thinking about here really plays into that. So what were your thoughts on that conflict? Yeah, it does play into it. Um, you know, people keep asking me, what, what do you think? Should there be a, a Muslim cultural center in a mosque there? And the truth is, I'm I'm, I guess I'm too much of a, of a social scientist to actually have an opinion about this. I'm so yeah. fascinated by the debate yeah, yeah. and by the arguments that the two sides are making and by the inconsistencies of the claims on the two sides because mm-hmm. very close to this issue of, of the mosque in New York came the issue of the, of the Quran burning, the threat to right. burn Qurans right. by the pastor in Florida, was it? Mm-hmm. Um, and the very same people who said about the Muslim site in New York, what do you mean they can't build a mosque there? We have freedom of religions. Who cares about your, you know, feelings getting hurt? Yeah. This, you know, we separate church from state. Those very same people said, wait a minute, you can't burn Qurans. Mm-hmm. You're, you're going to hurt people's feelings. Yeah. To hell with separation of church and state. And vice versa. The people who were outraged by the building of a mosque in New York who said, who cares about separation of church and state? Our feelings are being hurt here. This is, a, this is of tremendous symbolic value, and you're stepping on our values, said... Who cares about their values and their symbolic feelings? We have separation of church and state here. You can burn as many Qurans as you like. You can't have it both ways. Yeah. And so looking at the two sides of that conflict uh, was, was, was to me fascinating. Here's my real concern. Here's something nothing, nobody's talked about. And that is, let's assume this thing gets built. And I actually think the chances are good. I don't know how you stand on this, and I, I haven't been up to date yeah, on it. They, they haven't had the funding, so it, it's really up in the air um, whether it will or not. So we'll, we'll but let's out. assume the thing gets built. It is going to become a sacred site of primary symbolic importance. Right. It's going to become that second type of sacred site uh, that I talked about before. It's not formally a central site. It's not the impor- most important mosque in Islam. Mm-hmm. It's probably not even the 100th most important mosque in Islam. But it's going to become a sacred site because of the politics. Right. Uh, a, a, an important sacred site, both to Muslim Americans to Muslims internationally, and to opponents of Islam in America. And if I'm right about that, it must, with 100% certainty, become a site of conflict. Now, whether that conflict will come from Muslims in America who are upset about how this issue has been treated, whether it will come from radical Muslims around the world who see this as a threatening promise of Muslim American coexistence Mm -hmm. and will want to stir up trouble, whether it will come from American anti-Muslim sources who see this as a threatening sign of coexistence, um, they'll want to harm that structure. And they will harm, want to harm the people in it because, I mean, one of the reasons why these sacred sites become targets of violence is not just because people want to own them. Mm-hmm. That's not the case in New York. There's going to be no dispute over ownership. Right, right. They it's bought, a, they it's a mosque. Out, right. It's going to be a, a, a conflict for a separate reason, and that is it's a place that people care about. Mm-hmm. It's a place that people value. It's a place where a lot of people congregate. And that place can be crowded. And yeah. it's going to be crowded with easily identifiable Muslims. Right. 100% certainty that that place will be threatened. Yeah. And the, a question we have to ask ourselves as Americans is how are we going to protect it? it it's an uh, interesting question, too. When you talk about sacred spaces, one thing that I was thinking about was that um, you talk about sacred spaces being defined by very explicit boundaries. And as I watched the debate arise, one of the big issues was, well, 
how close to ground zero is ground zero? Uh, it, you know, it got to the point by saying, well, it's not exactly the World Trade Center site as it would be mapped out on a map. But on the other hand, a piece of the airplane flew through the, one of the windows there. And the, the boundaries seem to be rather ambiguous in terms of one of the sacred sites. And we were talking about the, the mosque or the cultural center being built as a sacred site. But we also have to keep in mind that um, many Americans consider the World Trade Center ground zero site as sacred. But the ground zero spot, that's not really well defined in this it's, debate. That's right. That's absolutely right. So the mosque is very is going to be very clearly defined. Right. You'll be able to tell, even if you know nothing about Islam, if, if you stand on the side and watch where people take off their shoes, that's going to be where the mosque starts. Mm -hmm. And where they put the shoes back on, that's where the mosque ends. It's very easy. Uh, the, the World Trade Center site, or the site of the 9-11 attacks, is going to be more complicated. It's not a sacred, religiously sacred site. It's a civil religious site like the Vietnam Memorial or the Arlington National Cemetery or um, Gettysburg. Right. Um, and so uh, the rules defining it are going to be a little more flexible. Mm -hmm. There's going to be no clergy responsible for overseeing and determining those rules. That's true. When, when, it, when you talk about, you know, it's important to consult the clergy in terms of um, yeah, who do you talk to yeah, you about talk this to? site? Okay. And, and, you know, again, you can do this experiment. Go to New York. And, and I, last time I was in New York, the first place, that was the first time after 9-11, obviously the first place I went to, I made a beeline yeah. for, for, for that site because I just I felt I had to see it. And you can tell people's behavior changing. Right. But it's not exactly clear sort of where it happens. Yeah. And people change their behavior in different ways. Some will take off their hats and hold them to their chests. Mm -hmm. Some will cry. Some will do nothing. Uh, the people working there, you're rebuilding the place, for them it's just a work site, right? Mm -hmm. Their behavior isn't changing, at least f in appearance in any way. It's hard to tell. Uh, different people will have different feelings about the boundaries of the site and its value. And now, of course, the politics comes in. So as a threat to what some people cons consider to be their core values emerges, some spokesman will come up and say, hold on. This looks to me like it's happening in our sacred space because I define the boundaries like this. Right. Um, and there will now be dispute over where the boundaries are, and that dispute can be very, very political. Right. Uh, let me just make, clarify the comment I made before. In sacred sites around the world in which minorities have to live in the presence of religious majorities, uh, that threat of violence is, is constant. Is ever present. Uh, most... Jewish synagogues in Europe um, are today guarded by police mm -hmm. and detectives. At least the big ones are. Uh, not because of conflict between Jews and Christians, but because these were targets, many of them were targets of Palestinian attacks in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. So most of the synagogues you'll see in France and Germany and London, in Austria, uh, will have police standing at a sort of respectable distance. Uh, there may be metal detectors. There's going to be some sort of oversight, closed circuit TV cameras, et cetera. We haven't been faced with that situation ever before. Uh, yeah. we, we ought to find a way, I think, to, if that site comes about, to both protect it, because I don't think anybody wants a disaster there. No, not at all. Uh, right. That's going to make things worse for everybody involved. Uh, both protect it, but at the same time, it's going to be hard not to give the people going there the feeling that they are somehow being observed or singled out or, yeah. hey, how, you know, I'm, I, you know, one asks yourself this question all the time in Europe. Hey, how come you get to go to your church without police supervision, but I got to go to my synagogue and walk through a metal detector? Right. 
So, so there's going to be issues of discrimination. I don't think that these in any way should influence the decision to build or not build mm -hmm. the mosque. That's going to be a tough decision one way or another. Right. Once that decision is made, the second decision is going to have to be made. It's going to be tough. Yeah. No, that, that's that's true. I mean, and in, in many ways, um, you know, just uh, some thoughts as we we have about five more minutes here. Um, and, and you've speculated on this at, at various points in time. In, in some regards, these issues that we're talking about, conflicts over sacred spaces, tends to lead one to this pessimistic view that these things are irreconcilable and we can't really solve these at all. Uh, you've given some indications as you talk about the, the rabbinic council talking about the, the Temple Mount and how they redefine that sacred space. But, you know, what are your thoughts in terms of this, to what extent are a lot of these issues irreconcilable or what ways might we make them more reconcilable to mitigate some of the conflict that does occur? So the last part of your question is, is, the, is the wisest of all mm -hmm. because if solution is impossible, and I'm going to stand behind my uh, bold statement that solution of these conflicts is impossible, mm -hmm. management becomes a priority. Mitigation. Uh, yeah. Solution is impossible, and this gets me into trouble with uh, many scholars of religion and conflict uh, from what I call the Kumbaya School of uh, International mm -hmm. Relations and Religion who, who think that, you know, why can't we all just get along? And if members of all religious faiths just look deeply into one another's eyes and held hands, we would recognize that we all children of Abraham, blah, yeah. blah, blah. We see the coexistence. <clears throat> I don't buy any of this. I don't have a single example on this planet of a important religious site that is shared by more than one religious group. Not a single case. I don't have a single case of a dispute over sacred space that was resolved successfully. What happened in Jerusalem in 67 was not resolution. It was management. The right. conflict is not over. Right? People are, are still fighting over ownership. The question was, how do you prevent bloodshed? Right. You cannot do that as a politician by dividing the space. Yeah. Uh, and Ayodhya is another example, and that's been in the news uh, in, in the last month, too. Uh, Ayodhya is a disputed site, very much like the Temple Mount, between Muslims and Hindus in India, mm -hmm. with very similar claims to Jerusalem, right? Our sacred site is on top, your sacred site is underneath. We both want to worship at the same place. We're fighting over ownership. And uh, an Indian court ruled, this was, uh, I, I think, exactly two weeks ago, Thursday two weeks ago, an Indian court ruled that the solution is to divide the space up. Yeah. This is not going to fly. They didn't consult with you. <laughs> it's not going to fly because uh, what this now does is, from the Hindu point of view, well, thanks for giving us two-thirds, and that's what the court said, two-thirds right. to the Hindus. But the other third is going to be desecrated by Muslims, and right. Muslims are going to think the opposite. The other solution that's been tried in Ayodhya years ago was to divide the site chronologically. You get it on Sundays, I get it on Mondays. Great. So now you get to desecrate it on Sundays, and I get to desecrate your place on Mondays. Yeah. It seems to be a, even a worse situation. That's not yeah. going to work. And in part, the problems are conflicting rituals, yeah. right? If a place is going to be a church, you're going to want to partake of the sacrament. That place cannot be a mosque. Muslims do not consume alcohol. If you've got to take off your shoes, there'll be people who, who aren't going to want to do that. Right. Uh, either your hat is on your head or your hat is off. A synagogue cannot be a church at the same time. So resolving these issues, sadly, and in that sense, I'm a big pessimist, is impossible. Mm -hmm. You can try to manage them. You can try to minimize the violence, and that will require not just political savvy, it'll require bringing in experts. 
If this were a dispute over farmland, you would bring in farmers. If this were a dispute over schools, you would bring in educators. Mm -hmm. This is a dispute over sacred sites. You need to bring in religious experts. You need to talk to these guys. You need to get the basic facts right. And then if you have the facts right, you might be able to coerce slash convince them uh, to play ball. You mm -hmm. might say, look, rabbi slash your holiness, um, if you don't if you don't help me out here, there's going to be bloodshed. Mm -hmm. And, and if, if they're the wrong person, they'll say, great, I'm all in favor of bloodshed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, blood yeah. is worth spilling over this. This yeah. is a very important. Th that means they're the wrong person the to wrong talk choice, to. Right. So you need to find somebody who's a moderate, somebody who has influence. Uh, I'm going to add a problem here to the fray. As soon as you talk to them, you're putting their influence in uh, jeopardy. Right? Right, right. Because, because that, this, yeah, yeah, this person doesn't want to be caught talking to a politician about how to resolve this dispute because their followers might think they're selling out. Yeah, it reduces their credibility. Reduces and their in credibility. many ways, they become the new battleground for the sacred space. That's right. So you've got to find somebody who has authority and a following who's moderate and who's willing to play ball. But even if you don't do that, even if you can't manage to get people to rethink their sacred space, you've got to have the information. So what am I saying? Buy my book. There you go. That's what I'm saying. That's, that's I think, the solution to... Uh, all academics love that solution. Yes. you got you to listen to us more. Always buy Ron's book. Buy Ron's book. Uh, buy my book. and all Absolutely. Continue, buy your book. And yes. continue, even though it has nothing to say about this issue, but uh, uh, and also continue to tune in to research on religion. Um, Ron, we didn't get a chance to talk about um, one of the other fascinating aspects of your work, which is how the sacred spaces have affected counterinsurgency strategy, not only with the U.S., but uh, throughout other parts of the world. In India, you gave great examples and such. So we're going to have to have you back again because I think that's a, a fascinating topic that we need to explore and really give sufficient time to. But uh, for right now, Ron, I want to thank you for being on um, Research on Religion. Delightful. Thank you for having me over. Thank you for listening to Research on Religion. To learn more about today's topic, participate in a discussion about what you've heard, or browse other podcasts, please visit our website at www.researchonreligion.org. And if you like what we're doing, please tell a friend. We'd appreciate the company. See you next week.